every year. John Jay College gives a justice uh, award to uh, a politician, an activist, um, from around the world, from the U.S., Supreme Court justice, who've done great things for criminal justice, and for the, the, the goal of social justice. And we thought that it was time to also recognize the media. People in the media, whether they're journalists, whether they're artists, or whatever uh, craft, who've also done a lot to uh, improve public knowledge, to provoke debate, um, to um, inspire people, really, to think differently about uh, our criminal justice system and, and the issues that the 21st century system uh, that we know it has to face and addresses. And it's a real honor to be able to deliver our inaugural award to someone like David Simon. Um, and I will let him speak for itself. The, the, the video tells you a little bit about why we did it. And to enlarge upon that, we've got a special guest to introduce David, uh, Terrence McClarney, uh, who is probably one of Baltimore's legendary detectives. Uh, when we asked David who's the best person to introduce you, we thought of all sorts of movie stars, Angelina Jolie maybe. <laughs> but no, he picked Terry McCarty. So, Terry, spotlight. And Mr. Hammersman mentioned the Super Bowl, so I just I gotta throw that out there. <laughs>
There were acts of kindness. There were times when the pleas were surprisingly kind. But there was a resignation. It was just like, this is it. You know, you do your nine hours and go home safe. This is it. This is what it's always going to be. Then, and I would mention the guys I went to school with who were not cops. And I would tell them. And they would think, well, you know, get another job. You know, that really sounds bad. Why are you doing that? No, but they didn't care. No one cared. The churches cared. Some ministers really cared. The media once in a while would write something that, you know, I would read and think, oh, they're, they're starting, you know, there's a good article. No one read it. No one cared. Only the people there cared. Now, part of that was in this film. So let me jump ahead ten years. Now it's the mid-80s, and I'm in homicide. And it was the same thing except different. No one cared about that. We would have, there's only 620,000 people in Baltimore. We'd have 300 murders. No one cared. They cared if someone important got killed, which was rare. And they cared if children got killed. Or, here's the worst thing, if you had a real victim. We came to distinguish real victims. An elderly woman in her house beaten to death. There's a real victim. You go to that detective's desk and you say, what do you have? Can I, can I help you? That night you pick up a drug dealer whose gun is halfway out of his dip. You try to solve it because you want a good clearance rate. But they weren't really like people. You know, just the, the you know, we called them real victims, so obviously the flip side is you have non-real victims. And that was the vast, vast majority. So along comes David Simon, and believe me, I'm not talking Sister Teresa here. It's still like pretty much like it was. But David comes and spends a year at the homicide unit. And I, I'll get to it later, what I think that did and why his contribution is important. But first, let me tell you about that year. They tell us a reporter from the Sun paper is coming. You might as well have said they're flying in from Moscow to us. Yeah. And we're thinking, no, no way, even our bosses aren't that stupid. And then David shows up, and he has the earring, and you saw his mugshot. And so immediately we're going, well, you know, they're crazy to let him do this. We'll just ignore him. So that, we tried that for a little while, but David was very persistent. And then we thought, he won't do this. He won't write a book. He'll be here a month. He'll write a newspaper or a magazine article. He'll be gone. So, but that's not what happened. He was there in the 4 a.m. when we would go on raids. He was on the scenes. He was at the autopsies. He was with, when we talked to the families. He dressed like he was on a permanent vacation. But still, officers would approach him and start telling him things at crime scenes. And he would always say, I'm not a detective. But they would keep talking to him. And I think they were thinking, well, neither are the rest of those guys. But, so David did the year. And, you know, he, and he took a lot of abuse from us. I'll just tell you one story. One we had, we got, we made a big case. We went out to get, we went out to drink. So David comes with us, first time. He says, Simon's coming. But he got used to him. You know, everywhere you turned, there he was. And we didn't have the interview room. We didn't have the viewing portals. So you had to open the door slowly because he was listening through the, the little door jam area. And we just got used to him always being there. So we were sort of like, you know, he's always here. So we're out drinking. And Dave starts to mumble a little bit. And he's looking off weird. And someone said, what's, what's wrong with him? 
as he said. I said, I think he's drunk. And uh, I said, how can he be drunk? He only had two beers. And I said, well, he's drunk. And so he kind of had to like him after that. <laughs> but he stuck with us for the year, and then he disappeared. The guys were saying, see, he's not writing a book. Whoever fronted him that money's a moron because they're never going to get it back. So, of course, that was a mistake. So how comes the homicide book? And our careers all took a little trash, apparently... And I know Chief Pratt here, but I'm glad that Commissioner Batts is not. But, uh, yeah, we curse. We talk like that. And it's a very earthy group of men. And uh, that, that's true. But somehow the uh, command staff was amazed at that, that we would talk like that to each other. But we did. But that sort of passed. I want to talk about the corner for just a second. When I read the corner... This is a huge compliment. People would say to me, is the homicide realistic? I said, yeah, it is. It is. But when I got to about page 20 of the corner, I just thought, God, this is my day off. And this is just like being at work. And it was. That's how truthful, I mean, accurate that was. The Wire, my wife refused to watch it because the language is so bad. So she wouldn't even watch it. And uh, But I think... What I'm saying is, before that, some people were interested in the problem in that dark little part of the city, that, that violent little place where, you know, it was easy just not to pay any attention to it if you weren't there. But after everyone started watching these things in their living room, I think the conversation got much larger and more people were interested. And I think that's the contribution that they've made. Um, I think, you know, in the media, the people, you like to say, shine a light on it, open a window or whatever. But, and he did shine a light on it, you know, a huge light. And so you have people talking about it who just didn't care otherwise. And I think that's the main contribution. I have a real problem with the MacArthur Award, the, the Genius Award. Uh, my phone didn't stop for days. Every retired homicide man in, in Baltimore was going, holy cow. How can that be? You know, and I said, well, it's a different group of people making those decisions. <laughs> but we've remained friends. We've been friends for 25 years. Not a popular thing in the city of Baltimore to be friends with David Simon. And to that I say, don't kill the messenger. Uh, as I said, there could be any town, but it just happened to be Baltimore that, that brought it out. And to end, I just want to... And it, and it, there's a police officer who was shot twice in the head. He's blind. That was in 87. Last year, he developed hepatitis C, which you see more of that because all the blood transfusions were before uh, they screened for hepatitis C, AIDS, et cetera, et cetera. So we're trying to get a thing going to get a live donor. He ended up having to have a complete liver because it just he went south too fast. But So we thought, okay, we'll get the sun paper to write something. And... Uh, that's great, and then that'll drum up people who are interested in doing this, being a live donor. You get them half your liver, you, everyone lives, you grow your liver back, I mean, you, there's one or two percent fatal, you may die. Um, so I called David. He's down in this about a year ago, 
around Mardi Gras time. He's in New Orleans. And I said, David, uh, and I explained it to him. And so David said, I'll be there tomorrow. So I have to say that. Mm -hmm. say something else. But so I, a lot of my stuff I was going to say, you know, I can't say it because of my wife. And, uh, you know, which is probably good because, you know, he is very, uh, you know, he's a talented man. We don't agree on very much. But I, you know, I think we agree on, you know, the state of crime in these inner city areas. It was just, it was just a cycle of despair just going on and on and on. I think maybe things are a little better because of what he's done. David? John Jay Trailways Reward. as you could possibly be at this point. I'm radicalized 
if they picked me to be on a jury, I would try to nullify that jury uh, for a nonviolent jury defense. But nobody doesn't want somebody to go out when somebody's killed and find the right guy and lock him up. Um, it's the purest form of police work uh, you can imagine in terms of, of, of what's required, what society demands. Um, so on some level, these guys knew we're not doing anything we're ashamed of. In fact, we know we're doing our jobs for the most part. Um, the clearance rate was above the national average back then, and uh, they, were, they were getting their convictions in court where they needed to. And so the department, although you know, Terry made a good joke about it, the department sort of knew they were putting me in probably one of their best units. Still, there's an incredible amount of personal risk to talking to a reporter. These guys opened themselves up. So did the people on the drug corner. Uh, so did, to, to carry to extend it even further, so did people in New Orleans when we were doing a fictional piece, but we were trying to root it in the reality of post-Katrina New Orleans. Um, the people, uh, the, the recon Marines, uh, they, those were all the real names of the Marines we used in, in Generation Kill, and that was because they opened themselves up to another reporter, Evan Wright, of Rolling Stone, who then later wrote the book. Um, and you can imagine how hierarchical the Marine Corps is. When that book came out, and certainly when the miniseries came out, there was some hell to pay. Um, there's no getting around the extraordinary trust that is required to talk to a reporter, uh, increasingly in this society, um, where uh, institutions are asserting over their reputation and their, 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 their standing um, in, in ever greater ways. Um, so I owe a real debt to the detectives uh, themselves for having launched me on this absurd course that I'm on. Which brings me to the absurd course I'm on. Um, I always thought I'd just be a reporter. Maybe I'd write some books and then go back to the newspaper, a better reporter. But I always thought newspapers would be there. But that's how I would end. Um, on, after your legs go, you're on the copy desk, irritating younger reporters, and bumming cigarettes, and telling them what it was like to work with Mencken and Manchester and Mark Twain. Um, but it didn't work out that way. So, you know, weird things happened, and Homicide got made in a television show, and my newspaper started to go south in terms of what the editors there valued. Um, long before the internet showed up. I mean, the demonology now, if you're in newspapers, is that it's the internet. You know, we were just doing our jobs. We were, we were making the world safe for democracy through journalism, and, and then the delivery system changed, and the economics changed, and we were all thrown out on our ass. Um, but we're more complicit than that. You know, I, my buyout was in 95, long before the internet mattered to anybody. Uh, 95, I left the Baltimore Sun. I was the third buyout under uh, Time, Time Warner, which when we were bought by out-of-town ownership, Time Warner, they always, they always said, oh, that's a good one. You got bought by the good one. Thank God you're not going to add. Thank, thank God you're not. No, there were no good ones. Newspapers were supposed to be locally owned. They were supposed to have a public trust. There was a lot that was implied in newspapers that obviously wasn't true. So I ended up stumbling almost backwards without even thinking I would stay in television. I ended up stumbling into a job on the television show about the, the detectives. And uh, I thought, well, I'll do this while I finish the second book because I need another year to go through that manuscript. And then I'll go get a job at whatever newspaper is the, the better place to go. I had some standing offers. Never thought I'd leave. And then, you know, what can I tell you? HBO is kind of like a crack pipe. <laughs> I, made about, I made about 110 hours of television now, and I'm still thinking, maybe it's time to stop and admit that I'm not a newspaper reporter. But 
the one thing, the other reason I wanted to have Terry here today is, you know, you, you make a nice film about me, and I look at it, and I see these these hyperbolic statements, and, and I get to come to nice awards dinners, and people give me awards. You know, stick around long enough, and, and you know, uh, what's that? It's a profane clash lyric from my youth that I probably shouldn't use, but we're all adults here. Uh, there's a song called Death or Glory by my favorite punk band when I was in college. Has a, uh, a line that says, "He who fucks nuns will later join the church." And that's that's kind of how it feels. It feels like you know, I was just a god, an ink-stained wretch, with my feet up on the desk, arguing with Terry over why he couldn't have given me, you know, three or four facts so I could have filed before my home final deadline, and you know, and and, and that's how it was supposed to go. And then the next minute, I'm you know, you know, well, I don't know if you know this, uh, but. I do love to read a lot of history, and, and uh, in the good old days of the, of the declining Roman Empire, um, and even at the height of the empire, when uh, when commanders and, and generals would come back from 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 a war in the uh, in the hinterlands, and they would they would have their cap, they would give them a, a triumph in the Colosseum, and they would march their their captives into the Colosseum before them with the legion behind them and all of their uh, assorted, uh, the ensigns of their the captured commands that they, have, they had defeated. And there would be this rousing cheer and they would look around at this incredible spectacle of Rome honoring them. They would always require a, uh, a servant, a slave even, to walk right behind the general and whisper in his ear, uh, you're not a god. Not a god. So, whenever I get invited to one of these things from now on, what I really wanted and what I'm disappointed in Catherine <laughs> for is I really think I need Terry McLarney off my left shoulder saying, You're still an asshole. You're still an asshole. You're still an asshole. Because uh, he knows. He, he remembers. And somebody's got to be there to remind me. Um, having said that, I want to congratulate the, the winners who did real journalism and are being honored today. I, I, I am famous for speaking ill of the prize culture, uh, but actually my, my point is actually a little more nuanced than that, I hope. And it's this. If you do the story because you think it's a story, and because you think it has merit and ought to be told, that's great. And if you do the story, um, if, if in December or January, whenever you look back on the work you did for a year, you say to yourself, Hey, I did some good work this year. Maybe I'll put this up for a prize. That's great. You know, if you're thinking about the prize you're going to put it up for in February when you're planning the project, then you're an asshole and you're part of the problem. So it's really simple. I mean, for all in journalism, let's speak the truth. You know, uh, I watched a lot of stuff get manufactured at newspapers, and that's what I was objecting to. The idea that somebody did some good work and gets honored for it. Um, specifically, the piece in the Picayune. Uh, I read it contemporaneously when it ran, and I have to say, um, it, it, it dovetails precisely with, with the arguments that, that I've been making for a long time now about um, the why. Uh, journalism is, any 14-year-old who's smart can do, can do basic journalism, by which I mean to say who, what, when, where, how. Um, that's really, you know, recounting what happened yesterday, is, uh, is is an easy enough gig for anybody who's literate and sentient. The why is what makes journalism an adult, uh, an adult sport. It, it, it's what makes journalism a, a meaningful way to spend an, an adult.
adult life and not be ashamed of yourself. The why is epic. And looking at, you know, starting with the premise of why is Louisiana become the American gulag? Why, why are we incarcerating our residents at this incredible rate? And why is America the world's gulag? Why are we incarcerating people at this incredible rate? Uh, Senator Webb, uh, who is now leaving government, very tellingly, uh, he had um, he had an article uh, ran, I guess, a couple years ago in Parade, and he asked the question another way. He said, or he made a statement the other way. He said, either we as Americans are the most evil people on the planet, or we're doing something wrong. And, and there's no other way to, to think about it. Um, the drug war has led us to some dramatic places that, that we never thought we would go as a democracy. And to ask the question from the point of view of, of the Times-Picayune, of why has our state become this, and then to work backwards from that, so that the whole, you know, you're spending a year not trying to play gotcha journalism, not looking for, a, 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 you know, the one bad uh, player who, if you just elect the right guy, you'll fix everything. You know, that that game is that game is is, is not only fraught but, but fraudulent. Um, but to look systemically and say, how did we get here? To, to, to engage the why is epic. So I'm, I'm very proud to be honored on the same night. Not, you know, no disrespect to anybody else, but that one, having been working down in New Orleans and trying to make Treme a narrative about what, what went right and what went wrong after Katrina, um, I only regret that I can't get five seasons out of the show because uh, this last season we're actually doing some of the conditions over at OPP, in the, in the parish prison. And uh, you know, we, ran, we were running out of road, otherwise I would actually get into the for-profit aspect. The idea that government, the government, wouldn't be the actual arbiter, in a very real sense, of when we decide to incarcerate fellow American, that 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 the guy in black robes wouldn't be thinking only that to take deprive somebody of their freedom for 10, 15, 20 lifetime is a, a, a is a failure. It's a failure of society. So if we're going to go there, make sure this is for the public safety. And don't let anything, don't let any other factor land it. And yet, these for-profit prison companies are lobbying legislatures for three strikes and your outlaws, for, for for more draconian drug laws, for more draconian immigration uh, detentions. I mean, the, the the two growth populations are nonviolent drug offenders and people trying to, you know, move to a better life, illegal immigrants. That's who, that's the population group. You know, when I started as a reporter, the federal prison system. 34% of the inmates were there for violent offenses. The federal prison system is, is sort of supposed to be the high end. Now that number is 7%. So, you know, this is, it's a nightmare. And, and you know, to the extent that we don't resist it, it's going to get worse. So I'm very proud to be honored in particular on the same night as that. And I think your remarks about where everybody went who worked on that, you know, it's, we all know that. If you, if, you, if you worked on a regional paper, you've watched the journalism disappear. It's very frightening, and at some point, I believe it will come back. I'll be a little, I'll end on a little note of optimism here because I think it's necessary, and I think a certain percentage of the population misses it and wants it. And what will ultimately happen is they will figure out what should have been figured out about 20 years ago, which is uh, this has value. This has value uh, to people who need to, need to know these things and who want to know these things, and they need to find a way to, 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 to get it paid for online. And you're already seeing that with the New York Times and the Washington Post. And the, the pay model will happen. 
it's a shame that they had to walk five sixths of, of quality journalism out the door before they figured that out. But I think they will figure it out. Um, so thank you for this. Um, it's you know again, uh, I feel like an apostate. I feel like I was supposed to stay in journalism, and that a lot a lot went wrong uh, in a in a moral sense, and that anybody in the entertainment industry who gets to pontificate like this is really just dipped in shit. So, um, would, would that Terry McGorney had told you more truth and a little less hyperbole, it would be, the evening would be a little more balanced, but he's a man of great grace, despite his uh, inclination. Thank you. March April. 
the guy, uh, it was the Bronstein case um, from 82 of uh, an elderly couple who was murdered in a home invasion robbery. Terry worked that case. He got, uh, he got the right guys um, and got the conviction. And uh, it was a really startling murder. And he said, he said something. I was looking through the crime scene photos, and, and the, this elderly couple, they had gone back in the house time after time to get more stuff out of the house after they killed the couple. And they had put pillowcases, if I'm remembering this correctly, over the faces of, of, of Ronstein and his wife. And Terry was looking at, at, the, at the photos, and he said something that was so not detective. It was so human. He said, I don't mean that in a bad way, because I really do respect the police work and detectives, but he said something that was sort of extraordinary. He said, don't the following photos really bother you? Is there something really disturbing about these photos? And, and there was. I mean, you know, a lot of it, a lot of what, you know, that's a room with 10,000 murders in it, or, you know, maybe 5,000 murders, most of them gone out of the microphone. There, there's photos in every one. There's dead bodies in every one. It wasn't a mere fact. It was, there was something, there was a real betrayal common humanity. The idea that I'm just going to cover you up while I, while I come back and take your stereo. There was something really bothersome about those photos. Um, and in showing them, Terry was trying to convey something that I didn't often hear. Um, he was, you know, that's the fascinating thing about, about knowing him, is that, uh, is watching him sort of compute humanity through his daily job. It was, it was, he didn't take the easy way. I was not Oh, that's okay. um, it's a microphone right there. Uh, you're, you're joking, uh, working, um, about, you know, feeling bad about leaving journalism and stuff, um, but as somebody who admires your work, I've always kind of had the impression that you um, found a medium that you thought was a better way to tell that complicated story of social systems um, that you, you know, talked about earlier, trying to tell through journalism, so I'm curious, you know, well, if that's true. I get to make it up now, so I get, I get to shape it to say exactly what I want. In that sense, it's more of an editorial, but it's not even that. Uh, I have too much respect for journalism to compare uh, anything fiction to that. And in fact, you know, one of our systemic problems with journalism is the number of people who are so hungry for the perfect narrative that they will shape a uh, fact into even partial fiction or even whole cloth in order to achieve the perfect um, which is disturbing in every sense. It's not a unique thing. Every newspaper that anyone's worked in, you can name one or two guys who were always cooking. Everybody knew who they were. Um, so I'm not going to be the guy who takes an eraser and sort of blots out that line between fact and fiction. Um, I ended up where I ended up by accident. Uh, and I'm not particularly suited to the entertainment industry. I mean, I will inform you that uh, none of these shows gleaned much of an audience while they were on. Uh, in fact, I'm, I've got about as far as you can go in television entertainment without having an audience. It's been a remarkable, you know. I mean, but listen, other showrunners resent, you know, that they're, they got to put on, you know, sex and taking time bombs and blowing stuff up and, you know, being hyperbolic about everything. And I keep making shows where nothing seemingly happens until we're, you figure out something happened but only at the end of the run. And that, um, you know, there's a lot, 
I'd resent it if, if, if I had to do all the other stuff to get on. I, I can't explain to you the weird window that HBO allowed me. But, you know, at some point, even they're going to get tired. So, I know that, that I don't, I'm not even saying I could make a more popular show if, if I knew how. I'm not sure I could. But I will, I will say that even if I did know how, I probably wouldn't do it. I am more interested in what really happened in New Orleans um, after the storm. And I am in shaping a perfect narrative that, that is dramatically hyperbolic. You know? I don't want to have Tony Burnett, the lawyer character, who's doing civil rights, rights cases, I don't want to have her have a Paul Newman-like uh, verdict, if you remember that movie, ending, you know, of, of righteous... Uh, I, I don't want to give that kind of release to the audience because that kind of release didn't exist in New Orleans. And the police department is still under a consent decree down there. And now the mayor, who has ambitions of his own, he doesn't actually want to do the hard work of reforming that police department, which is among the worst and most corrupt in America. He wants to get rid of this consent decree because he doesn't have the money to do the hard, you know, when it came time to appoint a police commissioner to clean that, that mess, because the police department was killing people left and right uh, from before the storm. And, and, and was was one of the most volatile and corrupt uh, institutions in, in, in America. And when, when the, the new reformist mayor took over, he, he appointed somebody who, who had a history in the department. He didn't come outside. He didn't get a deputy commissioner from New York or L.A. or someplace to come in and do the hard work of cleaning house and starting over and establishing a, you know, I take back every, Terry, I take back every criticism I ever made of the Baltimore Police Department. You guys are, you know, you guys are a solid C average. <laughs> no, it was a, it's an astonishing thing. And, you know, for me to make a television show where somebody triumphs over this, when in fact nobody has triumphed over it yet, and now the, the mayor, thinking, you know, I need, to, I need to solve a problem without solving a problem, he wants the consent decree to go away without having done the hard work of performing that police department. So you look at, it, you look at the reality there, and, and the, the, the guy who's a reporter, he gets all tangled up. He says, okay, I can't have the ending that would make everyone f feel like it was worthwhile to, to, to invest in this story. The only ending I want is the one that is credible to, to the fact on the ground. That's a terrible way to think if you're trying to make television. Problem, believe me. That's, a, that's a crippling disease. Uh, is, the, is the repertory. Uh, Julia, the voice from Philadelphia. Yes. Uh, Mr. Simon, I heard you in the University of Donny that's right. Of course. You get and, uh, I thought I had all my ministers' voice. Maybe you could hear. And there was a humanizing in your eulogy of him, obviously from a different perspective of the humanizing of the police department. I'm wondering if you could talk about that tonight. Donnie, uh, Donnie was one of the prototypes, or templates, I should say, for the character Omar. Um, he was a, a, a guy who robbed drug dealers. He, he had a good 15, 18-year run doing that off and on. Then eventually he went to work for a drug dealer uh, who was paying him sort of on smack just to be muscle. And he managed not to kill anybody while pretending to kill people. Uh, Donnie was his own weird creature, but he, he, he actually once cut out a brief from the Baltimore Sun of a murder. And they didn't know, that they only knew the street name of the guy that they were trying to kill. It was, was a drug war in 86, and he cut out a little brief, and he got paid for the contract by saying, this, this is for Fruit Loop. This is, we killed Fruit Loop. 
was just a briefing in the paper. Fruit Loop had been locked up two days before, and he figured he would, the guy wouldn't hear him. So Donnie was sort of torn along, violent guy, but he ended up eventually killing somebody for this drug deal anymore. And Bordley, and it actually bothered him in a way that you wouldn't expect after that kind of a life, you'd be bothered. And I'm not saying Donnie didn't shoot anybody or kill anybody before. I honestly don't know, but I suspect he did. But it, it was all in the game. He, he robbed drug dealers. If it, you know, if, if it came to a shootout, he would shoot them. But this was on contract, somebody who he didn't have a beef with, and it bothered him, and it broke him in a way, so that he became a cooperator. And he accepted a sentence of what he thought was 10, 10 years, and if he did everything right in prison, he would, he would make his first parole um, in 1987. And, uh, and 10 years later, nobody was there for him. All the people who promised to be there for him weren't there for him, except Ed Burns made that case. And Ed Burns, and then later the prosecutor, federal prosecutor put Donnie away. Uh, they all started trying to get Donnie out of prison. And by, he did 17 years, he got out of prison. Um, and he, he spent basically the rest of his life trying to give back. Trying, he was ashamed of his life. He, he, was, he was proud of it for having survived it, but he was ashamed of the damage he'd done. And he spent the rest of his life trying to figure out ways to inject some good back into the neighborhoods where he had been predatory. Uh, and that, that, that was to be admired. And, and um, I got to know Donnie very well. He became a very close friend. Uh, and, and he died just recently of a, you know, he was up here in New York for an event. And he actually had a heart attack. Um, he's, uh, you know, that wasn't just me. I mean, Ed, here's Ed Burns, the guy who locked him up, who figured out that this guy was, deserved a second chance. Charlie Shearer, the prosecutor. The FBI agent who was the assistant on the case spoke at his parole hearing. Um, eventually, the University of Maryland got involved. And finally, a couple of Terry's colleagues, uh, Donald Warden and Kevin Davis, uh, figured out that while there was no way to get Donnie out on a reduction, the only way they could do it was a reduction of sentence. So they actually went back and documented the fact that they had gone out to talk to Donnie 10 years earlier in federal prison, and Donnie had helped them clear up some other murders. And in writing those reports, there was actually a new piece of evidentiary material that they could request a hearing from the federal judge who finally did the right thing. So, again, nobody fits into any category. And whenever, I'll say this too, whenever I'm trashing the drug war, and boy, am I always trashing the drug war, um, I always make a point of, I'm glad I was in the clip of, you know, I start from a position of admiring good policemen. You know, it's not... No, no, we're all people. Nobody's the end. I'm really un uninterested in, in, in reporting or in storytelling in which all the cops are bad or all the drug dealers are bad or all the politicians are bad, where everybody starts from a position of nasty. I don't believe it. I've met very few sociopaths in life. You know, uh, and, I, and I've seen very few operate. You know, I know a lot of people who make a lot of mistakes. A lot of people do the wrong thing. A lot of people are at times selfish and then in the next moment um, quite human. Given. And it's in trying to capture that that I think reporting uh, becomes interesting, storytelling becomes interesting. So you know, Donnie was Donnie was a better man than his resume would have otherwise argued. And and you know I, I, I just I think the, the labels itself often tangle us up.
newspaper. Uh, it's a John Jay Sentinel. Uh, before I ask you my question, I wanted to know if you were happy the Ravens won the Super Bowl. I was at the Super Bowl uh, with my son. Um, I was very happy. Uh, well, I was, I was ecstatic for the first half, and then I was abjectly terrified uh, because when they came out after the, the light of the light, they were flat. And then I was ecstatic. And um, I, it was, I ran the gamut of emotions, as they say, from A to B. And, um, I, I can't believe it mattered that much to me. I mean, on, on some level, I can stand back from it and go, this is just a spectacle, you know, of, you know, I can't help it, you know. I, I'm stuck in the same curve as everybody else, you know, I want to see the game on Sunday. And, and I was, I walked away from the Super Bowl last night thinking, you know, how much fun did I just have, you know, over, you know, whether, you know, athletes representing, you know, representing in some vague way two separate franchises in two separate cities. Um, 
they would come out of their trailers in West Baltimore. And the trailers would be parked on like Schroeder Street or Cary Street, you know, where there's been no economic activity since the factories closed for 35 years, other than the drug trade and you know maybe a corner laundromat. You know, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a forgotten part of America. And these by season three, by season four, they would come out of the, the trailers, <coughs> and residents of West Baltimore would come up and just wanted to hug. I mean, there was a connection that the other America felt to that show that was just delightful and, and, and not at all surprising to me, but I was just proud to be a bystander to it. And people would talk to, to Andre and say, I know, I know you're going to get off air. I know you're, you know, you're doing all the right things. <laughs> and it's, they'd, say, they'd say, you know, a, a woman walked up to Wendell Pierce and played Bunk and said, this, this actually happened in, in, in Atlanta Airport. She goes, she goes, you're the kind of police that I always, you know, I always hope is out there. And I just, I'm really proud of how you play that part. It's just, you know, why did you have to sleep with Because of that one scene where they joke about having, uh, having sex with each other, which is a verbatim scene that I recorded in my notepad between Terry and his former partner in patrol, or his side partner in patrol, Bob Gallus, Cavanaugh's. Two of them are joking about, you know, about why they respect each other. It lapses into some sort of grandly and hilariously homoerotic. And I'm sitting there with my notepad thinking, I couldn't make this up, and it's sheer poetry. And so I gave it to McNulty. And so, yeah, a woman who literally took it literally walked up to Wendell in the Atlanta airport and said, well, why'd you have to sleep with that? I don't see that as being right. So, empathy can only go so far. We have time for just maybe one more very, very quick question from the audience. I asked you the... You lose. Okay, so I'm working on a story about uh, Washington, D.C. police uh, mishandling sexual assault cases, uh, unfounding them, discouraging from reporting, categorizing them as miscellaneous. It's happened in many cities around the country, and as I'm reporting it, I keep thinking of the line from The Wire, juking the stats. And I wonder, you know, your perspective on policing. Is there a way to do policing that isn't that isn't uh, so connected to the statistics and winning the numbers? You need statistics on some level, um, but you know, everything from when when, when you set up a, a, a when you set up a framework by which statistics are, are being used as a measurement for accomplishment and by which uh, personal careers are dependent upon that kind of accomplishment. Uh, you know, everything from CompStat in, in, in a formal sense to you know, clearance rates and, and everything. Um, there's five guys in the basement trying to figure out how to, how to make it better without actually making it better. It, it's not an organized, it, it, institutions tend to this. They tend to resort to. Um, and sometimes it can get Look, there's a guy who's now the governor of Maryland who's going to be wanting to run for president in four years. And if you go back and you look at, if you were to take the sequential CC numbers of all the police reports taken in Baltimore in the years where he was in seeking to become governor and he needed the crime in Baltimore to go down dramatically, you were going to find so many unfounded reports uh, for, for, uh, for part two felonies. And then if you go back and you find the living complainants in those reports, you ask them why it was unfounded. You're going to be shocked to see how it, it was known that it was happening. Supervisors 
who were very honorable uh, police officers were coming to us and saying they're making crime go away on paper. So sometimes it's mendacious, but sometimes, sometimes it just happens because it's just easier. People find their way to it. Um, and, and some of this has been institutionalized by, sanctioned by the federal government. You know, the way the FBI allows you to report. And don't get me started on prior year clearances. I mean, that game. Um, but every, you know, every institution does this. Journalism does this. You know, what is, you know, what is the Pulitzer other than, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, sometimes they give a Pulitzer Prize out, God bless them, it's for the right thing. Sometimes somebody starts on the campaign for a Pulitzer uh, in January, and they're relentless. And, and they're shaping, you know, they're, they're, they're writing stories about, uh, committee meetings, and the governor said this, and our, you know, the response to our righteous reporting was that, because they need to have impact, and, and they're shaping, you know, they're shaping that binder for the, it's like, every, you know, don't hold yourself above, we all play this game, school systems play it with graduation rates, you know, Baltimore, if you ask the Baltimore school system, you ask those people, what, how many people are graduating, you know, you'll get a, you'll get a, a 55, 60% figure, you're graduating about 22%, 23%. And a lot of those are social promotions, meaning they, they're not really diplomas. Um, everybody plays this game, and there's just careers on the line. And the only thing that, that, that will fix it is not internal to the institutions, but it's external. Maybe a police reporter. I didn't ask for that gig, but I got hired by the Sun. I was so happy. I'm working at a big newspaper, and I didn't have to go work in you know, some little town. For, I got hired, man. What beat do you want me to cover? You're going to city cops. Okay. And I, did, I didn't come up for air or ask them. The Sun had like foreign bureaus. They had a Washington bureau. It was a big paper. I never got promoted. I mean, I, I never got promoted. They just left me on the same beat. The stuff that I wrote when I was there one or two or three years, I can't read it now. It's embarrassing. It's, it's all yesterday, this happened. And, you know, I mean, it, it's workmanlike, but I didn't start to do any decent work until I'd been there four or five or six years so that you couldn't put dope in front of the table in front of me anymore for the 12th time and have to be excited because you know you see you hit 29 spots and sees three guns and, 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 a, and a bag of dope. But when I was a young reporter, those things could, could get me. I just wanted to uh, say a few special thanks to people who really helped make this event possible. And, and uh, I want to ask them all to stand up, but I do want to make a special mention of our sponsors uh, for this dinner, for this event, and our first. Uh, John J. Trailblazer Award, uh, Goldman Sachs. Um, uh, they want a whole table. I think they're, no, they're, they're I think they've left or they're not here. HBO, um, Fortune Society, Glenn Martin, uh, some other folks are over there. So you guys take a bow. Uh, New York State Permanent Sentencing Commission. Don't know which table they're at. There you go. Uh, we also. Uh, wanted to say special thanks to uh, uh, Renati Rene of the Tinker Foundation, Bloomberg, who's not here, um, and with something, an event like this, uh, we've been working a long time on it, and, and it's not the work of one person, four people, it's working with really an amazing team, and the two videos that you saw, uh, the first one on CMCJ, our shameless plug. Uh, it was done by Lauren Belfer, um, our 
uh, recent student graduate of uh, NYU Tisch. Um, really proud of her work. Um, the um, video documentary on David was done by uh, John Jay's Audiovisual Services. Uh, Paul Brenner and his fantastic team did that, and they are here. Some of them are still here, so we can give them a Thank you.